Thank you so much for giving to our church. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 to get started today. And bookmark, if you will, Genesis chapter 12. Not too hard to bookmark that one so early on in your Bibles. Uh, But if you'd like to bookmark that passage, we'll be turning there in a little while. But we're going to start together by reading from God's Word. Romans 4, going to read a little bit up at the front of the chapter and then skip down and read a little bit more. One of the, one of a, a really important chapters that really lays a foundation for our faith, if you can tell by the, by the title of our message, uh, this is a very foundational sermon, very basic uh, principle of what it means to be a Christian and, and what we believe as Christians and, and really all about belief uh, in and of itself. Uh, and Romans 4 really lays that foundation about as clear as it can be laid. So uh, not to get my words in front of uh, his word, um, he makes it pretty simple for us. So if you would follow along with me, we're going to read Romans 4, 1 through 5, and then skip down to verse 13. And this is what the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the Roman church, and he's trying to establish them and their beliefs and establish them and, and what uh, is, should be their foundation. He starts out with something that they're very familiar with. If you're not familiar with the character that's mentioned, the person that's mentioned in this passage, don't worry, before you leave here today, you'll be very familiar with this, with this gentleman, uh, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted or credited to him for righteousness, or a right standing. That's what that word means. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted or good enough for righteousness. Down to verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is void, the promise has no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all father of us all, not because we're related to him necessarily, but because we follow his footsteps by putting our faith in the Lord. Now, sometimes something that we talk about a lot in church, uh, really within the whole scope of Christianity, is faith. But here's something about faith that maybe you've never thought about before. We often only associate faith with church and faith with God and faith with religion. But faith, the, the idea of believing in something, trusting in something, faith is not exclusive to Christianity. Uh, faith is really core to the human experience across every lane, every avenue of life. You exercise faith all day, every day, in all sorts of people, places, and objects. Now, without faith, we don't get very far in, in, in life at all and on a very general very general level 
Now, I know that some of you are thinking, and this is why I wanted to address it this way. Some of you are thinking, Justin, faith is something that I struggle with. I don't have a lot of faith. And my response to you is that you say that kind of thing, and you say that, that, that you have that idea or that belief that you don't have a lot of faith, or faith is something you struggle with. You usually only talk about that within the confines of Christianity. I struggle believing in God. I struggle believing, or I don't have a lot of faith in what God says, or I struggle believing that it's going to be done like he says it's going to be done. But, but I, I want to just push back a little bit. Um, it, it's not that you don't have a lot of faith. All of you, every one of us, has a great amount of faith. And, and I think a lot of us repeat that line, I don't have a lot of faith, or I struggle believing. We repeat that line because we've been told, or we've heard that line so much, we've kind of believed something that I, I don't think really holds a lot of water. So if I could, I want to reflect back at you and reveal to you that you, and that includes you, all of you, you actually have a tremendous amount of faith. So let's go back in time. This time of year, we're all you're thinking about this, or we've all got someone that we're close to or family members who are thinking about this. Think back to when you were a kid, and remember that first day, the first day of school, if you can remember that far. And if you can't remember that far, just remember back as far as you can, and maybe we'll get close to the beginning of school as we can, right? But, but remember back to when, that first day of school, if you can. I'm willing to bet that almost uh, all of us had some butterflies that led up to that day, especially on that morning, on that day. Uh, we're, we're so little, it's hard to comprehend, uh, even if we're prepared for it all summer long. We're, it's hard to really know what's going on that day. Uh, if you can remember it, I, I remember the, the whole morning being very foggy, not just because my memory's blurry. I actually have a pretty good memory of that day. Uh, I, I remember being woke up super early. Never got up that early in my life before, or at least intentionally, or at least, you know, because I had to. Um, uh, it, it, that wasn't normal. I remember having them prepared for this day. Uh, I remember being at Myrtle Beach this summer, the, the few months prior to uh, the start of school. And I remember uh, going to a kiosk in the old mall that's now a parking lot, I think, for the convention center. But, but the old mall had a kiosk right when you walk in where they would take East pack uh, book bags and they would um, paint uh, a, a picture and customize the book bag. So I remember uh, my first uh, blue East Pack with a green dinosaur painted on it uh, that, that I was gifted that summer and, and I had never got something like that before. But lo and behold, I, I didn't really like the reason I was getting it because I had to, had to go to school. Um, but I remember standing outside uh, at, at, in my front yard or at the sidewalk in my front yard book bag um, on my back, a uh, lunchbox in my hand, that classic first day of school picture that now they're all over social media back then. You just took it to put in a photo album and never look at it again, right? But now, now you got to post it and share it and all that stuff. But, uh, uh, but, but those were the days, right? Uh, and, and, and I'm sure mom has that picture somewhere, me and, me and my sisters. But I remember riding to school and, and still not quite sure where I was going, but I had been to those schools before to pick up my sisters. But now uh, I was actually having to, 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 uh, to, to go myself. So I I remember being walked to class, went into the entry lobby of Union Elementary. We took a right, went all the way down a long hallway, uh, and right before you got to the, the brand new gym and cafeteria, my, my classroom was on the right. I, I remember sitting down uh, in, in a little desk and uh, looking out the window, scared to death uh, and wanting to cry. But, but I remember the end of the day, the end of the day, coming and getting back in the car and understanding that that was just going to be how life worked for the next 13, at least the next 13 years. Um, now, I can't remember every conversation that was had that day or on the days leading up to that in that summer, but I suppose it must have been a pretty emotional day because 28 years later, I can literally visualize most of that day. 
Now, studies show that even if you have a good memory, most of us don't retain our memories of things from that long ago unless they were very uh, emotionally impactful. Uh, so I think we can agree that there are some things that you, you might not can remember anything that happened five, six, ten years ago, but you have this memory from when you were a child, uh, maybe that goes back 20, 30 years ago, and it's so vivid, it's so, and it may be for good reasons or for bad reasons. You have these memories that are from your childhood, from your younger years, that you might not can remember anything before or after those days, but you can remember that moment or those moments from those certain days because they left a deep imprint on your mind and on your memory. So something key that I remember about that first day in those early days is I didn't want to go, um, I, which I think most five-year-old versions of ourselves probably didn't want to go or don't want to go. Uh, I, I didn't want to go. I, I, had, I was sold a bill of goods by my mom, and, and, and I, that was simply what I had to do. I didn't really have a choice, and I was assured that things would be okay. And at the end of the day, I would probably enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it, but I still had to go, and I made it work. So um, I, think it was until, I think it was up until college that I actually looked forward to going. So 14 years later, I uh, actually uh, looked forward to going. But for those 13 years, not a lot of looking forward to it. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, m- Mom was right. I made it. The days weren't all bad, and I learned a lot along the way. So I bet, I bet you're coming to terms with school or overcoming any particular fear or anxiety. I bet you probably have a similar story where you didn't really want to do it, but you were told that you had to do it, but it wasn't told to you in kind of a mean way. It was told to you in an encouraging, comforting way. And I bet all of us have some story from our childhood or even from recent years uh, where your mom or your dad or somebody that, that cared for you deeply, someone that loved you, someone assured you that it would be okay. Someone assured you that you'd make it and everything would work out, and you believed them. You trusted them, and you never looked back. Do you understand that that simple exchange you made mentally all those years ago when you were just five years old, do you understand that that was a crazy big act of faith? Maybe you never thought about that way before. Maybe you've never thought about it, but when you were just five years old, even younger for some, You believed what someone told you and you look past all the other inhibitors, all the concerns on the basis of faith alone, you went forward. And yeah, you still worried, you still had some bad days, you still doubted, you struggled. But ultimately, that act of faith, which was born on that first day, carried you through all the days. Some days your mom or dad had to encourage you a little extra Maybe even carry you uh, to through the doors if you were that uh, much of a, a that that re- refusing to go. But some days you struggle to believe them and you question them if, if they were right or if they were to be trusted. But the reason you eventually made it to the end of that journey, a journey that is common that we all share with each other, the reason you made it twelve, thirteen years later is because that little basic faith carried you the whole way. And and I know, I know, you didn't get up every morning thinking, well, I believe that my mom and dad care for me. They wouldn't bring me there if they didn't believe, if they didn't, you know, have have good good for me in mind. You didn't go through that motion every morning, but because that initial act of faith where you were told, it's going to be okay, I love you, it's going to be for the best, you're going to make it, you believe them and you walk through those doors and because that seed was planted, that little act of faith carried you every single day for the next 13 years. 
All throughout life, we make these similar exchanges from reasons that we have doubt or question to deciding to take that first step anyway. Again, we could talk about your first trip to the doctor, your first trip to the dentist, and you laid there, or you were there, and you were about to have all the things done, and you didn't know if you wanted to do it, and you were scared, and someone told you it's going to be okay, and you believe them. And, in, and maybe they had to encourage you every time you went, or, or maybe it got easier, but regardless, along the way, you kept doing those things that you were told that you got to do because you trusted that the person that took you there, the person that brought you there and that was there with you, you trusted them. And that was enough to get you through the whole journey. The reason you relent and go along with anything that doesn't make sense to your little mind as a kid is because of faith. It's all about faith. Someone loved you, somebody cared for you and convinced you that you could trust them and they would not lead you down the wrong path. So I don't want to hear anybody ever say, I don't have a lot of faith. And I know that might sound insensitive. I, I love you. I care for you. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just, I just want to make it clear. And I want to kind of maybe allow you to hear out loud something that you've said a lot that I don't think you really mean. I don't want to hear anybody say, I just don't have a lot of faith, Justin. Yes, you do. You have a lot of faith. When you were just little, you exercised faith and you went from terrifying and crying to being as brave as you could imagine in the span of minutes. And somewhere along the way, we as Christians have believed this lie that we just don't have faith. I guess some just do. Some just have more than others. I don't know. Maybe it's easy for them. We believe that. We exercise faith every time we listen to anybody and follow anyone's advice or their lead. We do this with doctors. Uh, Don't even get me started. We do this with politicians. I mean, we vote for people and support people and we, we don't know. We don't know anything about them except what they've told us. Oh, we believe them. We do this with so many institutions. Oh, by the way, and I am a parent now, so I can say this without being too critical. Uh, the, the knots are a little secret. Sometimes your parents, among others, sometimes your parents assured you things were going to be okay and they had no clue if things were going to be okay. Right? I mean, they hoped it would and they would do everything within their strength to make it okay, but they didn't know. But you know why they told you? Because they, they, they wanted to calm you down, right? And they promised you it would be okay because they were willing to get in the trenches and make it okay if they had to. But sometimes they encourage us along the way and say, hey, you're going to love it. And we, they didn't know if we were going to love it. They didn't know what was going to happen, but we believed them, didn't we? And you believe them every time they say it to you, right? Even if you know they don't know what they're talking about. But just hearing them say it's going to be okay makes you feel better, doesn't it? Even when you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, right? Having someone, your parent, grandparent, people that mean something to you, having them tell you it's going to be okay, even if they don't know, it does something for you, doesn't it? And you know why it makes you feel better? Because you trust them, don't you? And you know why you trust them? You know why you trust them better than I know why you trust them. But why do we trust those? Because they love us. And they have a track record that suggests that they are Trust worthy. So when your mom or your dad or your grandparent or somebody said, hey, it's going to be okay, just trust me, you did, didn't you? Because they loved you and they cared for you and they never let you down. So why would you question them now? So let me say this. We often associate faith, particularly faith in God, with a lack of evidence. Or better stated, we often disassociate or detach faith from proof or evidence, 
But can I suggest that that's never been appropriate to do? And can, can I suggest that that's never how we've interacted with faith? You know why you trust people? You trust people or systems or things because they've proven themselves trustworthy. Why do you trust your mom or your daddy? Because they've, they've, they've made themselves to be trustworthy. You don't just trust them blindly. They've cared for you. They've nurtured you. They've been there for you. They loved you. You do all sorts of things that otherwise wouldn't, you never even attempt entirely because somebody or something has a track record convinces you that you should do it. My point is the idea that faith must be blind to be legitimate or recognized or effective is completely off base. Because you've never just believed something sight unseen. You've always required evidence and that's okay. That's normal. I hope we've been able to bust some myths that I think uh, that, we've, that, that have had this unnecessary power over us, negatively affecting our capacity to believe and trust, especially when it comes to God. Two things that I hope we kind of clarified. Number one, we all have a lot of faith. I don't want to hear somebody say, oh, I don't have a lot of faith, Justin. Yes, you do. You've been exercising faith all of your lives. You have a lot of faith. And number two, faith is not about stepping out onto nothing. People that say, well, you've got to just step out without knowing what's going to be there. That's not how faith works. Faith looks for something that can hold the weight. Faith is all about, hey, can that hold me up? I, 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 I'm all on board then. Can that support my weight? Well, of course I'll step out on it. Faith, and particularly faith when it comes to the Bible and the God of the Bible, is never about just stepping out onto nothing. Faith is always saying, hey, you can trust me. You can believe in me because I've proven myself to be trustworthy. And you don't have to worry if this is going to fall. So what does this tell us? It reveals us that when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our connection with God, finding enough faith is not our problem. So I, I don't, again, this is, this is about breaking this barrier down that a lot of us have. Your issue, allow me if I can to deconstruct, your issue is not finding enough faith. Your issue is not, well, I just got to click my heels together and believe more. That's not your problem. I, I know you might think it is and you might push that protection up and that's okay if you still want to do that, but I'm trying to knock that wall down as best as I can. Your problem, our problem, my problem is not I don't have enough faith. My problem or, or the, 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 the issue is it's a matter of transferring our already abundant faith. See, we've already established you've got a lot of faith. You trust people that love you. You trust people that don't even love you, but they say the good things, they say the right things, and you believe them because, hey, they buy, you buy into their agenda. And that's fine. That's how we work. That's how it operates. You have a lot of faith. So when it comes to faith in God, it's not about finding more faith or finding enough faith. It's about transferring your faith. It's about shifting your faith from something that, that you have relied on for a long time to someone better, something better. So if you struggle with faith in God, you know what that should tell you? Your fa- you don't have a faith deficiency. You don't have a faith shortage. You just need to shift your faith, move your faith from where you've been resting it onto the Lord. Think back to when you were younger, when your parents were trying to get you to do something new. They would talk to you about it early and often up until the moment. In the same way, maybe you didn't know that God has been trying to get your attention for a long, long time. And you may, not, and you may need more than anything. What you may need more than anything is to start listening to what he has to say to you. Because he's got a lot that he wants to say to you. 
as we'll discover today, his word, his promises, which is his word, is, is his promise from front to back. His word has the power to change your mind even more so than the words of your parents or some other influence over you has had before. So this is the intro intro, obviously, if you couldn't tell, this is the intro to a series called Back to School, learning the basics of what life is like in the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of us, we don't know what life can really be like uh, because we've never taken the basic entry-level steps. We've never taken the basic entry-level courses. A lot of us jump into Christianity and we bypass the entry-level courses and we're in the deep end and we don't really know the basics. And maybe because someone assumed we did, but we weren't honest enough to say, I don't, I don't know the basics. For the next few minutes and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the heroes of the Bible who God chose and taught some of these core basic principles of what life with him can be like and should look like. And this is the starting point of this basic rundown and the starting point of any conversation about knowing God and knowing uh, what it means to have a relationship with God always comes down to faith. And you can't have any conversation about faith without talking about a guy named Abraham, or as he was originally called, Abram. So as, as we've read in this Romans text, uh, Paul appeals to the Jewish ancestor, and he's talking about our father Abraham because they're Jewish people mostly. He appeals to Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation, and the father of the Jewish nation, the father of the Jewish people. More importantly, he's the father of faith. He's the one that set in motion this way of relating to God. And he makes it clear, or this scripture makes it clear, that Abraham did not come into a relationship with God because he obeyed all the laws, obeyed all the rules, did everything right. Abraham did everything wrong in a lot of ways. But what brought him into a relationship with God was not that he kept the law or obeyed all the right things or did all the right things, but that he placed his faith in God. Particularly, he placed his faith in God's promises. Not a rule keeping, not obedience, not good works. He was saved, as we say, by simple faith. So to reduce it down for you in a way that I think you can run with, Faith in God is what makes us right with God. Righteousness means a right standing, to be right with God, to be, uh, to be good with God, to be on good terms with God. Sin makes us wrong with God. It makes us, as the scripture says, ungodly. It makes us disconnected from God. We were born that way. We didn't ask for it. We are born disconnected, but faith reconciles us with God. Faith brings us back into harmony, into unity with God. Faith in God is what makes us right with God. So what is the starting point of a relationship with God? It's not keeping these rules or doing these things right or making sure we don't do those things wrong. It's coming to God on the basis of, I am going to trust that he has my best in mind. So let's say that together. Faith in God is what makes us right with God. Faith in God is what makes us right with God. Romans looks back at Abraham as the choice example of how faith makes us right with God. More importantly, it brings to mind how Abraham came to faith in God. Many of you have probably heard that Abram is considered the father of faith, the father of those that believe, as verse 16 tells us. Not only is this something that Christians say, but other religious people, other religious groups say the same thing as they point to Abraham as the father of their faith. 
which should tell you, which, which should tell you that Abram's kind of a big deal. He wasn't always a big deal, though. He used to be. For most of his life, he was a nobody, completely a nobody. He lived in an ancient city called Ur of the Chaldees. There at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a star, Ur, alongside of a lot of other names that probably don't mean much to you at all. Uh, everyone in this city was a part of a much larger civilization uh, that we've talked about before. Uh, you'll, you'll, see the word, you'll see the name Akkad on there, or A-K-K-A-D. Um, this was an, a region known as the Akkadian Empire. Um, you've probably learned in school uh, about the, a place called Samaria or Mesopotamia. Uh, that's just a, a couple of different words that all apply to this same region. There was all kind of different labels given to this region in, in, until eventually um, we settled on the Akkadian Empire in the history books. But around 2000 BC, Ur was uh, one of the major cities in this ancient empire. Everyone in this part of the world worshipped a pantheon of gods. I mean, they had a god for everything and a god for every day and a god for every season, all relating to some aspect of nature. But the chief god was uh, this figure they called Nana. And Ur of the Chaldees happened to be the epicenter of worship and act, supposed activity of this god Nana, who was the moon god, who was the moon god. And they believed the moon god was the chief god and the most superior god. You may wonder, if you're going to worship one of the objects in the sky, why would you pick the moon over the sun? Uh, well, the simplest way I can put it is they don't call, the song isn't Arabian Days, the song is Arabian Nights for a reason. Because when they looked up at the night sky, they saw a spectacular sight of stars alongside the moon. And these are pictures, these are pictures you can find online of photographers in Dubai and parts of the Arabian, Arabian desert. They looked up at the night sky and they saw just an ocean of celestial lights, of course, ruled by this moon, by the moon. And of course, they believed the moon God. Now, the ancients believed the night sky was speaking to them. The gods were using the stars to show them signs and symbols and wonders as important as the sun and the daytime were. The nighttime just had more spectacle and kind of, and that's kind of how the ancient people decided that the moon was superior to the sun. We'll never know exactly how their logic worked, but I think it gets us pretty close. They just looked up at the night sky and saw this brilliant, wonderful tapestry, and they just thought there has to be something up there that's saying something to us. So they began to worship this, the moon, and, and they called the name of the moon Nana. Everyone in this town would obsess over the stars, hoping to find a sign and hoping that one day maybe the moon and the stars would actually speak. They built towers to get to the top of, to get as close as they could to the heavens, so hopefully they could hear something talking to them. You, you may wonder, if, if the Genesis story is true, the origin story of creation, that one God made everything, how did it get so messed up? How did it get so far off base that people were literally worshiping the objects that God put in the sky? Uh, well, th that's the result of the fall. And I know that's an easy cop-out, but that's the reality. The one God made everything, Adam and Eve rebelled, and they messed everything up. And from there, the world became populated with a rebel race on a crash course for destruction. God intervened, started over with a guy named Noah, but the flaw in humanity was inherent. And with every person born in Adam's image, with Adam's blood, there was that flaw. That rebellion against God. It became so bad that all humanity united together to basically declare that they didn't need God anymore. So God intervened again and confounded their languages and separated the nations into what they kind of are today. People were sent in all different directions, finding community with those they could speak to naturally. Over time, 
there was this longing for reason and understanding. Over time, there was, they would turn toward heaven and they would seek after God or if there were more than one. So this craving for reasons and answers ultimately led to the beginning of all the different religions of the world. They, as they began to connect dots and try to understand what was going on behind the scenes. Clearly, everyone was confused. And you have to imagine if there was an evil force in the world, if there was an enemy, an adversary, that serpent from Eden, you have to imagine if he was steering people away from God, that he used these religions to trap people and ensure they never actually arrived at the one true God. So all these religions pop up all over the world and all of them are trying to make sense of it through their own eyes and their own senses and their own understanding. And they only got deeper entrenched in those religions. So Ur of the Chaldees was just one example of many similar scenes all around the world. All the while, the God of heaven was watching and waiting, preparing for a day when he might reach and unite all the nations again. Alas, that would take a long, long time if he were to do it in a way that people would respond to. The world was a series of nations and every tribe believed their God was the greatest and whatever nation was ruling, they assumed that that was the strongest God or had the strongest God. So God in heaven decided he would play that game. He would start his own nation, reveal himself through that nation in a way they could understand. So when they saw his nation on top, they would know that he was the most high. Eventually, he would do something that would change the world, that would break out of those old parameters, but that would take a long time. So one day, he would, that we don't know the details, but one, the one true God chose one of the millions living in the sands of Samaria. One day, Abraham looked to the heavens, wondering if there was more to the story, and God actually speaks to him. Now, we don't know the nature of this revelation, but Genesis 12, if you'll turn back there, Genesis 12 tells us what God said. And before you think, how could this happen? How did God just randomly start speaking to Abram? How did, how, we don't even know the nature of it and what was going on when it happened. Before you think, how could that happen? I want you to listen to what God said to him. And I want you to consider all that we know about Abram since this revelation happened. And then we'll decide if it's trustworthy or not. So, so the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you or from you and through you, all the families of the world, of the earth, shall be blessed. So there's three promises here. So let's run through them. Promise number one, Abram's family would become a great nation. Ask any Jewish person, ask any Israeli, they'll say, that's us. The greatest of all nations, they would say. Ask any of the many, many Arab nations, they would say, that's us. That's where we came from. And of course, you can trace through history in both the Jewish nation and the Arab nations all come through rightfully claiming Abram as their father. Many definitely came from Abram, so today we're not arguing if a nation came from him, but which one and how many? And who's the more legitimate? Isn't that wild? 
All of us and most people around the world, if you were to ask who is the most recognized man in history who's had the biggest impact in terms of the nation, the world as it is today, Abram would be at the very top of the list. But when God said this to Abram, he was a nobody. And it was very unlikely that he would ever have a nation, much less be a great nation. Promise number two, Abram's great name. Let me ask you this. Ur-Namu. Anybody know that guy? I doubt it, unless you're just a nerd like me. Ur-Namu was the king of the city of Ur. When you're the king, you can name the city after yourself. I guess Namu didn't sound as cool. Ur-Namu was the king of the city of Ur. There were hundreds of thousands of people living in Ur. Nobody knew anybody's name, but everybody knew Ur-Namu. But 4,000 years later, nobody knows Ur-Namu. But everybody knows Abram. And to make it even more difficult, God changes Abram's name when he's in his 70s to Abraham. I mean, if you want to make your name great, don't change it when you're halfway through life because then people won't even know who they're talking about, right? Just try changing your address at some point in your life. People don't know where you live. How can, you t- how can somebody's name be great if they changed it halfway through? Yet all around the world, people say, oh, yeah, Abram, who's also named Abraham, yeah, that guy's great. You know who that guy is? That guy's the father of the Jewish nation. That, 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 that guy's the one the Arab people point to as the father of their nations. That guy is the father of faith. Promise number three. All the world will be blessed through Abram. So the Arabian people, the, the people of the Arab nations, Muslim people, they say, hey, you, you want to know where mathematics came from? You want to know where basic transportation came from? From us. You want to know how blessed you are to have math working behind the scenes? Well, hey, thank us for that. The the Jewish people would say, you want to know where the moral code for modern society came from? You want to know where modern science and medicine came from? Clearly, we've been the blessing. And and Christians, we come along and we super spiritualize it and we say, are we even going to have a debate? Of course he's talking about us. Of course, Christianity is the, it's what's blessed the world. And it's kind of all three, isn't it? It's kind of all the nations that have come from Abraham. And of course, the faith that came from Abraham. My point is, Abraham has been a great blessing on the world in every way you chop it up. Nobody's come close to contributing to the world as much as Abram and his family have. But here's where it gets personal. Years go by, and and Abraham goes from 75 to to, to on the door of 100 years old. And he's not worried about being a great nation. He's not worried about being a nation. He's just worried about being a dad because he has no kid. He got this promise when he was in his 70s. Now he's nearing 100 years old. He's got no kids, no heir, just a slave from another tribe that's set to inherit his stuff. If he, uh, that he's got in this caravan, he's piled, or, uh, wandered around for 20 years. And he's wondering if God is going to keep his promise. Because all he's got is this blind promise from God from Genesis 12. So flip over to Genesis 15. And Abraham is a little bit, not a little bit, Abraham is full of doubt. 
Abraham is full of uncertainty. So he comes to God for some clarity. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And I guess God told him not to be afraid because he was starting to be afraid. He was starting to worry. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? See, and I go childless. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, which is an already established nation. But Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to number them. He took him out to one of those breathtaking Arabian night skies. A little bit more in the sky for them to see than what we see at night, right? No light pollution out there. He says, Abram, I want you to look up to the night sky and I want you to count the stars and I don't think you're going to be able to. I don't know if you can count that high. So shall your descendants be. So Abram is at a, at a crossroads. God's, the only proof God's given him is the stars in the sky. He says, Abram, I, I just want you to trust me. You see all those stars in the sky? I guarantee you one day people are going to point to you as their progeny or point to you as their ancestor. There's going to be more people pointing to you as their father than there are stars in the Milky Way. So Abraham, he kind of doesn't know what to do. I mean, do I just walk out of here and give up? Or do I trust this God I've never seen before? who only evidence he's given me is the number of stars in the sky. You'll never believe what will come for you, who will come from you. Just believe in me. And this next verse is so important. This is 4,000 years later. It's still the foundation of our faith. Verse 6. He believed in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. And he accounted it to him. That, that's an accounting word. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, a word that we use in the, people use in the accounting business, as in, hey, they credited to him. You look at your bank statement, there's debits and there's credits. Credit means you got money. He credited to him a right standing. Now, Abraham didn't go on that mountaintop looking for a right standing. Abraham went up there looking for, for clarity. But you know what this tells us? God is moved when people trust him. God is moved. His heart is moved. God is looking for trust. Abram didn't go up there saying, God, make me righteous. He didn't even know he had a righteous problem or an unrighteous problem. He just needed a family. And God responds by making this foundational statement, this foundational transaction. Abram trusted and God made him right forever. A behind-the-scenes transaction that speaks volumes all these years later. Abraham believed in God's promise. God credited him with righteousness, a right standing based on faith alone. So what is it? Faith in God makes us right with God. Trusting in God's word. Turn back, if you will, to Romans 4. I want to read the end of that passage and see how this applies not only to what Abraham did, but how it applies to us. And we'll wrap up. Romans 4 verse 20, 
Abram did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not only not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also, underline, for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our offenses and was raised because of or for our justification. So it, now it comes to our laps. Abram made a decision Do I continue trusting in and leaning on what I've known up until this point? Or do I shift my faith? Do I transfer my trust into and onto the Lord? Now listen, talk about blind faith. He had no proof. He had the stars in the sky, but that was all. He had to choose whether or not to take God's word at truth. But for us, we have so much proof that should help make this a pretty easy transaction for us. Exhibit A is Abraham. Abraham is enough to convince anyone or should be enough to convince anyone to trust in the God of the Bible. Because there's no denying that he alone is enough to prove, to prove how valid and authentic everything that God has ever said. And that what, what the Bible says about God is true. But the proof doesn't stop with Abraham. Because verse 24 and 25 make this about Jesus. Abraham was just setting the stage for what Jesus would come to do. And maybe even greater than the evidence found in the Jewish and Middle Eastern people is the church. Just like the Middle Eastern nations have tried their best to shove each other off the map for the last 4,000 years, and yet they persist alone. Think about the story the church tells. The church has persisted in spite of itself. There's been so much confusion, so much corruption, so many splits and fights and endless arguments. There are so many churches, yet unless your name on the sign is similar, and even that's not always good enough, they don't, we don't even talk to each other. We don't even talk across the aisle sometimes. Yet, for the last 2,000 years, there's no denying the church has grown and grown and grown and impacted the society for good on every possible level in spite of itself. Because you get us all in the room, the evangelicals and the Baptists and the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Catholics and the Orthodox, even some fringe groups that don't even believe all that we believe in the Bible. Guess what happens when you get all of us in the room that otherwise don't ever speak to each other? If you ask, what do you have in common? And we all would confess, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the Savior of the whole world. Everything else is different. Baptism and communion and songs and practice and interpretations. But we believe that Jesus is God in flesh. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood on the same sands that Abraham did. And he cast a vision. I'm going to build my church and hell won't stop it. Nobody wanted to believe that Jesus, nobody had any idea of what Jesus was building. And lo and behold, all over the world, again, in spite of all that we do to not get along, in spite of all the things that we all argue about and fuss about and get into conflict about, two billion people gather in places like this and they lift up a Jewish carpenter, the, the descendant of Abraham, as the savior of the world. I, I don't think some people just got in a back room a long time ago and said, hey, let's just force this through and make this work. People will believe it. 
<laughs> There's too much evidence that suggests something miraculous indeed took place. But Jesus didn't just make this promise. He also said this, that he would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed on the third day, be raised. No one wanted to believe that Jesus could die, much less that he would even raise again. But of course, he was arrested and suffered and crucified. Everyone gave up. Everyone unfollowed him until they came face to face with the risen Jesus three days later. And that's when they began to go and tell the world. And that's when the church was born. And that's why we're here today. Just like with Abraham, they transferred their trust out of what they had been leaning on over to Jesus. But unlike Abraham, their faith wasn't blind. Because what God had done was right in front of them. It's like the Apostle Paul said to King Agrippa, The king knows that these things, to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It's obvious what God has done in the world. It's a matter of cluing ourselves into it and trusting him. The starting point for any of us to be in a real relationship with God will always be this. Faith in what God has said and what God has done. Trusting that he will lead you into a good and right place. One last thing about faith. As seen in Abraham and as seen in disciples. Faith follows. As in it follows God. It follows the Lord. It does something as a result of believing Faith never stands still. If Abram had had stood still, he wouldn't have left. If the disciples had stood still, they would never have left the upper room. Just like you you didn't stand outside your school on that first day, you took that step and you walked in against your inhibitors. You trusted your parents. Faith in God makes us right with God, but it also makes us walk with God. If your relationship with God does not look like that, that you're trusting that God makes you right with him based on faith alone, not what you do or what you bring, what he has done. You trust him, that makes you right. And if your faith does not cause you to follow and walk, then it should be called into question. It could be that you need to go back to the very beginning, the very basics, and restart your relationship with God. It's not that God hasn't kept you, but we've mixed things up a lot through the years, haven't we? And sometimes it's good to start fresh, start anew. The starting point will always be, has always been, faith. So a couple of questions. Do you trust God and his word? Have you shifted your faith? Have you shifted your weight out of this world, out of something in this world to him? Is your faith inspiring you to follow and live for him? As we've discussed, you have a tremendous amount of faith. You put your faith in a lot of people, a lot of places, and a lot of things. Your problem isn't a faith shortage or a faith deficiency. It all comes down to where have you placed your faith. You will only ever be right with God if you first trust him. And you'll never follow him if you don't always trust him. A decision you make on the inside affects everything about you from the inside out. It all begins, it all starts with faith. You have a lot of it. It's all a matter of placing it somewhere worthy and sufficient and able to carry you forward forever. If you want proof of what it can do for you, look at Abraham. If you want proof of what it can do for you, look at the church. 
If you want proof of what it can do for you, Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to raise you up and make you new. And you can be right with God based on that faith in him, trusting that he is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. It's not about what we've done or what we haven't done. It's trusting in him as enough for us. Abram set the standard and it's never changed. You want to write standing with God? You want to live for God? It all comes down to where have you placed your faith? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the invitation you've given us to start for the first time. Perhaps someone in here today has never put their faith in God. They've never trusted in Jesus. They've never seen him as the source of their salvation. They've always thought it was a combination of what they've done and what they bring and who they are and what they've accomplished. But it's clear, the Bible makes it clear that a relationship with God is based on faith alone. Trusting that God is who he says he is, will do what he says he will do. We just simply have to trust in him, shift our weight on him. Lord, that's the invitation you've set in front of all of us today. If there's anybody here that wants to renew their faith and renew their relationship with you and they want, to, they want to tear it all down and start over on that simple action of faith. Let it be known to everyone here today, they don't have a faith shortage. They don't have a faith deficiency. It may just be they've put their faith in the wrong places or, or, or places that just aren't worthy and just can't carry them the whole way. What could their life look like? If they just trusted you, Lord, for all that they need to make them all that they need to be, would you tug on the hearts of everyone here today and would you invite them to put their faith in you, to trust in you and see how their lives can change from this day forward? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.